you have your Bibles, be turning to Hebrews chapter 3. And as you're getting there, I want to say uh, last Sunday we entered this third chapter of this amazing letter. And uh, it is, in fact, an amazing letter, brilliantly constructed and argued, as uh, all the scriptures are, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this one is uh, really special. We've spoken about that. It is, I think, entirely appropriate to think of it as something like a theological symphony, because it has parts and movements and uh, things that call back to what's already been said, themes. There are all these different parts of this that he's bringing to bear. And as you think about it, I was thinking about it this week, uh, you see this as you think about it. We walked through and spoke about these movements or parts of this letter. It begins immediately with this exordium, which speaks of the honor and glory and authority of Christ. So right off the bat, we know who we're talking about. Christ is this uh, incredible uh, reigning king who is fully God himself, who by himself purged our sins. We've looked at this so many times. And then it moves into this second section, the second part. And it's important to recognize that uh, because the second part builds upon what's said there. Christ is the reigning king. He is the one who is glorious above all others. There's no question about that. And we recognize that something is said at the end of that exordium that's important, that Christ has been given a greater name and has been made greater than the angels. And so again, it builds off of that. And we have this whole movement about the greatness of Christ in comparison, uh, if you will, to the angels. And why is that important? Well, we don't recognize why it's important until we get to the next part, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where it tells us very clearly that there is a warning and a danger to drifting away and particularly to not recognizing an essential fact given to us in these four verses. If the angels mediated the original covenant, and that covenant held force and sway and was enforced in such a way that to neglect it would bring sure punishment upon yourself, then how much more serious must we take the covenant made uh, and mediated by the Son? Again, he uses the language, how will we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. So again, that uh, comparison and contrast between Christ as the Son, the reigning Lord, the mediator of the new covenant against the old covenant and its mediators, the angels. And we walk through that. But it's interesting because at the end of that four verses, another movement begins. We've talked about it as sections before, but I'm kind of thinking in this language right now. And it builds upon what's already been said that Christ is greater than the angels, but its purpose is not to re-argue that. But it uses the contrast between Christ and the angels to go to Psalm 8. Uh, The author here says this is the way to get to this important psalm, which says that Christ was made lower than the angels. And he uses that to argue that it was necessary that Christ come into the world, be made lower than the angels, suffer, even die, become obedient to death, even the death of the cross, that he must do all of this for this saving work. Because he didn't just have to be our sacrifice. Again, I say he did have to be our sacrifice, but he also had to be the high priest who offered that sacrifice. And to do that, he had to suffer and be made like us, tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin, able to minister to us as a faithful and merciful high priest. And so all that is given to us at the end of chapter 2. But as we think about it, he's made the argument of Christ being 
compared and contrasted against the angels, uh, one mediator of the Old Covenant, God meeting through angels on the heavenly side, Moses on the human side. Last week we began to tackle chapter 3, this new movement, which says, and by the way, we need to address Moses, because Moses also was a mediator of the Old Covenant on the earthly side. And guess what? Christ is greater than Moses. And so we come to this new movement, and it's important to think about it in this way because he's not only calling back to what's been said of comparing Moses to Christ in the same way before angels were compared and contrasted, but he's also setting up where he's going to go next. Because he's going to go, as we see next week, we'll move into it next week, we'll talk about it a little bit this morning, into an Old Testament picture of the danger that his hearers are facing now. And so we'll want to look at this as we think about all this. But uh, think about the fact that he's not only bringing up Moses to talk about this picture of Old Covenant versus New Covenant, but he's setting up an argument, a picture, a shadow in the Old Testament that points to a truth today faced by his hearers and faced by anyone who would consider walking away from Christ. And so let's begin to look at it today as we come to this text. So we come to chapter 3. I want to read it again, these first six verses. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of your confession, our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, as we look at this, we covered much of it last Sunday. We want to pick up on just a couple of points before we move forward. But we want to look at these two in particular. First of all, the example of faithfulness given to us in this text. And second of all, the need for faithfulness. So we are given an example of faithfulness. In fact, we're given two examples of faithfulness. But there's also a reminder here in this text that we are called to faithfulness. And we need to think about this. And so, beginning first with the example of faithfulness, it's what this section is really all about. We began to look at it last week, and if you would just uh, have your memory refreshed for just a moment, it begins to talk about Moses in comparison and contrast against Christ. And it, in fact, says, first, consider Christ. It refers to Him as an apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, I won't go back through expositing all that again, but again, it sets up immediately, consider Christ. Christ was faithful to the one who appointed him. In this apostolic mission, do not get confused. We're not talking about the office of apostle. In the New Testament, we're talking about the role of apostle, which is one who goes out representing someone. I want to be very clear on that. There's a sense in which we could say that we're all apostles of Jesus. We are all his representatives, but we are not apostles in the New Testament office sense, in the sense of that foundational office of the church. And so we want to make clear there, when it speaks about Christ as an apostle of God, it means God sent him into the world. And we gave multiple examples last week where Jesus himself said, Father, you have sent me into the world. 
We made the point that Jews saw Moses as an apostle, one whom God sent back to deliver his people. We spoke about all these things last Sunday, so I'm not going to go too much into them, but again, Jesus as a high priest, we've been expositing that in chapter 2, but Moses was an intercessor before God uh, of his own people, of, of Israel. And so again, these things point to a parallel between Jesus and Moses, and both were faithful. Both were faithful. Again, it says Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. And we, in fact, tried to look at that last week, that it says he was faithful in all God's house. We made the point that's like a steward, not just a servant, but a steward. We said there are pictures of faithful stewards in the Old Testament, aren't there? We gave the example of Eleazar, Abram's uh, steward. In fact, I should have said this last Sunday, but that's a really fitting picture, not only because Eleazar was faithful, so faithful that Abram trusted him to do important tasks and put him, if you will, in charge of running the house as a servant. But you may remember in Genesis chapter 15 when Abram's concerned because this promise that God has made to him has not yet been fulfilled. I don't know uh, how, how much doubt he had that it would be fulfilled. He was a man of faith, so I think he thought it would be, but he couldn't figure out how God was going to do it. And he reminded God, right now a servant of my household is my heir. In other words, if he died, Eleazar would be the one to inherit what he had. And the question that is begging is, is that appropriate to the promise God had given Abram? I think Abram recognized it wasn't. He was saying, God, if you don't act, all I'm left with is a servant, not a son. Not a son. That doesn't mean Eleazar wasn't held in high esteem by Abram. He certainly was. But it means there is a difference between a servant and a son. And that text is calling us to remember that. There are so many pictures in that, aren't there, in that whole narrative of Genesis. It can't be a son. I mean, it can't be, excuse me, a servant. That doesn't fulfill the theological picture any more than uh, the other way Abram tried to make this promise happen, right? With Hagar, a maidservant, if you will, of his wife, wasn't any more meant to happen that way by human effort. That is his problem there because he even pleads, oh, that Ishmael may stand before you, God. Can Ishmael be the heir? Can Ishmael be the one? Why do we keep having to wait, wait on a promise? I've given you a son, God, to use. But the promise isn't based on human works or human effort or human planning or human strategizing. It's based on the promise and gift of God. And that's why Ishmael born of human effort and scheming, cannot be the seed. It must be the gift of God, the promise fulfilled, and that is what Isaac is. They had no way of planning, strategizing, or bringing Isaac into the world. God did it miraculously. He gave them a son. And so again, that's where Genesis points to the laughter at the idea that God could fulfill it in this way. Paul exposits that in Romans, doesn't he? That, uh, that Abram and Sarah, basically as good as dead, brought forth a, chi- a child. How? By the promise and power of God. God did it as He promised He would. And so all these things have pictures. You're waiting on a son. And Jesus is not just a servant. He came serving. We recognize that. But He is God's own Son who came into the world and fulfilled this mission and now is over 
the household. Not just a servant in the household. He is over the household. Now, my friends, that is very important. Very important. And it says of him, like Moses, he was utterly faithful. But it gives the idea his faithfulness was on a whole other level. More faithful, worthy of more honor, more glory. He is worthy of more worship. Obviously, Moses is a man. He's not worthy of any worship. And so, again, we see all these pictures that Christ is greater than Moses. He is the ruler of the household. That doesn't diminish Moses. In fact, we looked at the text that um, the author is quoting here last Sunday morning in the Old Testament. And what does it say? God says not to disrespect Moses. That Moses wasn't like the other prophets who God spoke to in dreams and in visions. But he spoke to Moses face to face. And yet even Moses, as honored as he was, as privileged as he was, he is not the son. He is not the son. And so the author is saying, give your attention to the son. Give your honor and praise to the son. Recognize that he is of greater honor, greater dignity, counted worthy of more than is Moses, as great as Moses was. Now, that tells us here, that Christ is the one our attention is to turn to. All these things point us back to Christ, point us back to Him. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because we looked at this last Sunday. It's important to say this. When we speak about the faithfulness of Christ, and faithfulness is kind of the key word here for these six verses. As we think about the faithfulness of Christ, we spoke last week Christ was faithful to the mission given to Him by His Father. That was said all throughout the text of the New Testament. Christ was faithful. He came. He was born under the law. He became obedient to the law. Did not break the law. He became obedient to the sufferings that were in the path that he was on. Turned his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, though he knew what that meant. Was despised by his enemies, lied about, maligned, abused. He bore it all. Faithfully bore it all. And as Paul said, and we quote often, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Even with what that meant in terms of suffering and shame and cursing, he did it all faithfully. But there is something else we need to think about here. And that is a faithfulness that he has to the household of God. Not only in terms of his actions, but also in terms of being an example for us. And we'll come back to that idea in just a moment. But his faithfulness certainly is to God. But at the same time, when it speaks about he endured the cross later in this very letter, he endured the cross for the hope set before him. What was that hope? Of reconciling a people to a holy and righteous God. So he was faithful also to us and is faithful to us in his ministering on our behalf as our high priest. He is interceding, He is helping, He is aiding. All these things we've been looking at, He is doing these things for His people. And so we need to be thankful for a faithful high priest. And in fact, if you go back uh, to just the last chapter, it says that very thing, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That He has been or He is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's faithful. Now He's certainly faithful to the Father, but He's also faithful to us. He makes intercession on our behalf, and we are thankful for that. Now, I also said a moment ago 
that this is an important concept, the faithfulness of God. Now we're speaking specifically about the faithfulness of Christ, but it's important to think about this theme, the faithfulness of God, that He keeps His word, He keeps His promises. You know, in First uh, and Second Thessalonians, we went at those uh, at length last year and early this year. I think we started last February and finished up March of this year, those letters. Paul keeps coming back to this theme of God's faithfulness. It's a theme he often turns to, right? He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. But he also says some things in that letter uh, like, he who is faithful will do it. It's pretty clear that what Paul means is, I'm not counting in your cleverness or your ability. I'm not counting in your efforts. I'm counting in the fact that God is going to get this done. God is going to be the one to transform you. He is the one who transformed you. And he's the one doing this. And so again, my confidence is not in you any more than my confidence is in me. Paul says, my confidence is in God. My confidence is in God. In the same way, I think this author will come back to this theme over and over again. God is the one who is utterly faithful. He is the one that can be trusted in, and we are called to put our faith in Him. Now, I said a moment ago that He also is an example for us. And I want to be careful when I say things like that, and I want to tell you why. Uh, Oftentimes, you'll hear... Uh, Liberal Christians talk about Christ as our example, Christ as our model. Certainly true, but what they often mean is by human effort we try to climb the ladder and look more and more like Jesus. And I don't think that's what the Bible ever gives us as a picture of what Christianity is, some human effort to conform ourselves to look more like Jesus. The thing the Bible says over and over, if you look at 2 Corinthians, it says we are being transformed by the Spirit of God transformed, and in that way being conformed in the image of Christ. It's not something that we can do. We can't just read the Bible and say, well, I like Jesus. I'm going to try to look more and more like Him. Now, uh, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and with the aid of Scripture and all the various things that the Lord gives us, we are battling sin and doing all the things that we are called to do in this process of sanctification to be more and more like our Savior. We ought to look more and more like Jesus than we did yesterday or last week or last month or last year. No question about that. But when I say that He's our example, it's calling us to recognize that Jesus does show us the way to be faithful to the mission that God has given us as His apostles, if you will. Again, not New Testament office, but messengers, representatives. We are called to be a people who are faithful to Him no matter what that road brings. It'd be easy if the road was always sunny and easy and maybe slightly downhill, something like that, but it's not always, is it? Sometimes the path we're on calls us to go into deep and dark valleys, difficult valleys, valleys where it may not be easy to follow or remain faithful. may not be the easiest thing to do. might be easier just to see the valley and say, I'm not going. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to find another path that's a little easier, a little more comfortable. My friends, if you think about it in those terms, you're right where this letter is written, aren't you? Because again, you've got a group of Jewish Christians that are saying, this valley is too deep, it's too dark, it's not comfortable, I don't want to go this way. Too much persecution, too much difficulty, I don't want to walk this road. There's got to be another road. Might be reminded of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? If it can be, take this cup away. This is not preferable. This is not the 
the, the thing that any human being would want to do. Christ in his humanity did not want to drink of that cup, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And there are many times if we're going to walk faithfully before the Lord, we're going to come to those moments where we're going to recognize a difficult valley, a difficult road that's before us, and we're going to have to ask ourselves, are we going to avoid it if it's where the Lord wants us to go? Or are we going to say, like our Master, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done? Now that's the question before these hearers. They're thinking about packing up their uh, bags and leaving the church and going back to the synagogue and saying we're going to go back to what we know, what we were comfortable in. Nobody's persecuting our Jewish friends. Nobody's persecuting them. It's a little safer over there. The church is being ransacked by persecution. It's not an easy path. It's not an easy road. It's a dark valley. Don't want to go down this valley. And this author is saying, wait a minute. Before you pack your bags, before you walk out the door, Stop and think for a moment. Are you being faithful to Christ if you do that? And what does that say if the answer is no? Now that's largely where we're going to be going. If you want a road map to where we're going, this is where he's going. I told you, I don't know, two months ago that there's going to be some imagery from the Exodus that's going to be coming up. We're getting right to its door now. And the question is going to be, are we the first people to be put in a situation where we're asked about being faithful to God? Though we call ourselves the people of God. And the answer is, of course not. It's a, a thing we all face. But there are major pictures in the Scriptures that would especially get a Jewish believer's attention. And so here we are at this moment. What are you going to do? Are you going to avoid the valley at any cost, even if it means giving up the name of Jesus? And what does that mean to give up the name of Jesus? We've been wrestling with this a little bit over time, haven't we? I've kind of given you my take on it, but I think if we look at verse 6, we come to our second point, which is the call for us to be faithful. We're going to recognize something here that's said. It says this, but Christ as a son, so again contrasted against Moses, who is a servant in all the household of God, and whose very life is a testimony pointing forward to the one who would be over all the house, and that is Christ. Christ as a son over his own house. Now we get the interpretation again of what this means, what this house means. Whose house we are, we are the household of God. The people of God are the household of God. Christ is over us. But notice there's a conditional statement given here. We are the house, the household of God, the people of God, if, conditional statement. And these conditional statements make us very uncomfortable. But we have to deal with them. They're right here in the Word of God. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, why do these statements make us uncomfortable? For one thing, we will always want to be careful to not read out of this that we are saved by our efforts, by our works. We are not saved by works. The Bible makes this very clear. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by faith in Christ. And so we want to recognize that. But this is saying something that we need to hear and wrestle with. We are the people of God if we remain steadfast in the confidence and rejoicing of the hope. 
Let's put it a different way. If we do not remain steadfast in the hope, we are not of God's household. Now we could have a whole sermon here on perseverance and is this saying that you were in the house officially and fell out or you were never in the household. I've made my position clear on this. I think it's clear what he's saying is you were never really amongst the people of God. You never had faith. It's just been revealed that you did not have faith. It's revealed you did not have faith. I think if you have any question about that, you're going to see it clearly when he goes to the Old Testament picture. He's not saying these people were truly the people of God, but somehow uh, no longer believed in God. He was saying they were, it was revealed through their trials and tribulations. They were never really the people of God. They were along for the ride. They called themselves the people of God. But the fact that they did not remain steadfast makes clear that they were not the people of God. Now, again, as we read this, we notice not only that we must hold fast, that's like standing fast. Paul says elsewhere, standing fast in the faith. We must hold fast, hold on to the confidence. What does that mean? We don't lose our trust in Christ. We're confident in Him. Christ paid it all. All to Him I owe. That means I still believe that today. I don't have any less confidence in what Christ did for me today than I did five years ago. I believe Christ died to purchase me. And if He did, I can trust in Him. I don't have to waver in that. doesn't mean that we don't have shakable moments, but it means we hold fast in good times and in bad times. We hold fast the confidence and even says the rejoicing. Find a confidence and a joy in the fact that we belong to the household of God. My friends, if you truly believe that you belong to it, there is a joy in it. There is a joy in it because we recognize that we have a hope that transcends the grave. That even death cannot take away. We've been going through Matthew on Sunday nights and there's that great verse where Jesus tells His disciples who He's telling them that they will face persecution. He says, Fear not man who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. Fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, we have a, a hope that transcends what any man could do to us. What any power on earth could do to us. We have a hope that transcends that and we put our faith in Christ. We have a confidence in Him and even a joy in Him. Even a joy. Even in those valleys. And maybe you've been there with a loved one. In difficult valleys. Maybe at the end of life. Maybe not. Maybe some difficult time in life. But even through those valleys, people can rejoice. Because we know in whom we have believed, as we will sing in just a little, in a few minutes, I should say. We know these things. We have a joy and it cannot be taken from us. And again, this text reminds us that it's the holding fast and the end of things that matters. The Bible warns us over and over again that there are those that get off to a good start. It's not the good start that counts. Right? It's the, the end of things, the holding fast to things that counts. We could find many places Uh, To look at this, as we've been going through Matthew 10, Jesus says, in a warning to His disciples facing persecution, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. Right? Not those who seem to start well, but then fall away. Again, the idea is, I think pretty clearly, 
that those who are truly born again will persevere to the end. We can find elsewhere examples. We can go to the Gospel of Matthew in that great uh, chapter on the, the parables of the kingdom and you find a couple of pictures there. You know, that, that not everything that starts looking like a Christian is a Christian. We can think about the parable of the sower. Seeds went on many types of soil. And they started coming up, didn't they? For a day they came up and it looked like, oh yeah, even on that rocky soil over there, even on the, the thorny soil over here, it looks like they're growing. But they all didn't make it to harvest. You can think in that same chapter of a parable given of wheat and tares. And the entire picture of that is based on this idea. The fields are sown with wheat. An enemy comes by night and sows in tares. And the experts tell us this seed is called darnel, And it looks like wheat. I mean, for a long time as it grows, it looks just like wheat. And so by the time that they have recognized it's not wheat, somebody's come and sowed weeds into the field, what do we do, Master? He says, well, we couldn't know until now because, I mean, the Master knows, but, you know, we can't know. And he says, but if you pull it now, you endanger the harvest. Let them both grow to the end. In other words, all that looks alike at the beginning will be made clear they're not alike at the end. And there are warnings throughout the scriptures, even of ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. So again, this picture is given to us over and over again that not all who start uh, at first looking like a Christian are actually Christians. So we see this picture next week in the Old Testament. We'll have to consider what the New Testament says about this as well. Paul brings this question up, doesn't he, in Romans. Are all who were of Israel Israelites? Were they? How do you explain all those people in the wilderness that when they inhabited trial and difficulty, melted away and said, you know what, we don't want, we don't want this. Let us go back to Egypt and its idolatry and all that was there because at least there were not buried in the desert somewhere. What about all those Israelites in the land who said, give us Baal? What about them? What about all those throughout time that said, you know what, if the road's going to be difficult, we'll take somebody else other than Jehovah. We don't want him. Give us somebody else, any other God, who will give us a good harvest, a good crop, make our lives a little better. Were they true Israelites? Is that what the Bible is arguing? Were they truly a people of God? I mean, Jesus even speaks of his own circle, his own disciples. He says, I lost none of them except the one who was the son of perdition, right? Of the devil, Judas. Again, the idea was Judas a person of God? No, it tells you right there he wasn't. And so again, I want us to think about this. We're going to come to some difficult uh, imagery that we're asked to think about. And what the author of Hebrews is giving to the people in his day that we also need to hear is, where are you in the picture of the Exodus? In the wilderness journey, where are you pictured? Are you like a Joshua? Like a Caleb? Like a Moses? Are you more like all the many others who were grumbling all the way? 
complaining every step of the way about what God did not do for you that He should have, turning away from Him at every moment, every opportunity. What's going to be said of you? Because you're in a similar spot now, the author says. And maybe one day we'll be in a similar spot. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be thinking about this. When the road gets hard, who are you with? Are you with Jesus or whoever is going to give you an easy road to hoe, an easy path to walk? And my friends, I think what the author is saying here as we close is, think about this. Think about this. What will it say of you? I've said it this way a number of times over these chapters. What will it say of you? What will the testimony be of you if it's recorded one day if you walk away? You're not part of the household of God. You're not among us. You're in the story just as all those before who departed, who weren't faithful. But consider those examples were given. The author is going to come back to this, isn't he? In Hebrews chapter 11, think of all the examples of faithfulness that we have that have been given to us. He goes through a lot of the great men and women of the Bible, doesn't he? Examples of faithfulness to, to model ourselves other, to draw inspiration from, to see that God works even in difficult times. Which one of you would be put in the situation that Abram was put into? As Abraham has finally received the child of promise and God says, now take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Which one of you have been put in that difficult situation? Abraham remained faithful through it all. He said, I know this, God has made a promise through Isaac. If he calls me to sacrifice him, he must raise him from the dead. Now that is faith. I believe that God will still keep his promise. I'm not quite sure exactly how, but here's how I'm figuring it will happen. Because God cannot lie. I can trust wholeheartedly in him. The author of Hebrews is saying to these Christian, these Jewish Christians who are thinking about leaving. It says you never trusted in Him. You didn't believe in Him. You never put your faith in Him. You never trusted in who He truly is. Because my friends, if Christ can uphold the universe by the word of His power, He can handle the situation you're in. He can handle it. You can trust in Him to handle it. And so just stop a moment, He says. Consider for a moment the apostle and high priest of our confession. Think about him for a moment before you make the decision. Sit down and think for a moment. Who are you with? Are you with Moses? Because Moses was great. But Moses was given to us as a faithful servant for a testimony to those things which would come after. Moses would tell you, quit being an idiot. I'm pointing to Jesus. I'm pointing to Jesus. Are you with Moses? Who are you with? Are you with Jesus? And my friends, we're going to be asked this question sometimes, aren't we? Who is our steadfast faith and confidence in? We're here today because we've claimed it's in Jesus. But we need to live like that's true. Like we trust in Him, like we're not blown to and fro by every wind, every, every event, every trouble or difficulty that comes our way, that we hold steadfast in our confidence, even in joy, because we belong to Jesus.
And my friends, that's all we need.